Thanks, Erica. Good morning. It's great to be together this morning. My name is Kurt, and if we've uh, never had a chance to meet, uh, good to meet you now. And uh, it's my privilege to stand before you and uh, walk through the Word together. Uh, Tim asked me to speak this week. Um, He's out uh, this week, and uh, I'm reminded in the preparation and then presentation of just what a gift it is that uh, we have him to uh, teach us and lead us every week through the Word, So, uh, or for anyone that's up here uh, doing that. Uh, it's all an, uh, a great opportunity to learn together. So I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 9 uh, with me. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 29, the next little section uh, in the passage. <clears throat> Bolt Castle is this giant structure in, uh, it's located on Hart Island, which is located in the middle of the St. Lawrence River near Alexandria Bay, New York. Hart Island is a a tiny little island, uh, big enough for a a giant castle to be on it, Uh, but in the scope of islands, it's not very big, and it's one of eh, approximately a thousand islands that they claim to be, and why they name this region in upper New York State, the Thousand Islands. It's speckled little islands all through the the western side of the the St. Lawrence River as Lake Ontario, the Great Lakes, empties eventually, makes its way through the St. Lawrence Seaways and empties out into the Atlantic Ocean. But in the year 1900, New York City hotel magnate George Bolt began construction on a summer home with the intent of creating a display of love for his wife, Louise. Now, this was no simple she-shed that he was constructing here. He employed over 100 workers, stonemasons, carpenters, artists, all to work nonstop throughout the calendar year. Work continued for four years when he telegraphed the island to ask that all construction, all work, stop. You see, in 1904, his wife Louise suddenly passed away, and he was so heartbroken, he couldn't, he couldn't bear the thought of, of continuing the work uh, to a monument, to a display, uh, to a memento uh, to his wife. It would just be too painful a reminder. However, through the course of time, the plan, the meaning, remain unchanged. It was in 1977, so from 1904 to 1977, it it sat pretty well dormant, when in 1977, the Alexandria Bay Bridge Authority, or, yeah, strange group, but, well, they might not be strange, anyway. (laughs) See, I think too much when I... (laughs) Little thoughts pop in my head, and sometimes I say them. <laughs> but they took over the, the, the castle, and they completed it, brought it back up to uh, pristine condition, uh, and it still remains. It's known as the Bolt Castle, and everyone knows that looks upon it that, hey, this was constructed as a monument of love towards uh, this man's wife, towards George's wife, Louise. Um, And it's just an incredible structure. No simple she shed. Hundreds of workers, six stories high, approximately 130 rooms, a separate yacht house housing, a fleet of boats, and then uh, another disconnected powerhouse that held at the time the most state-of-the-art and complex steam generator to power the the whole endeavor uh, as well. 
This was quite an ordeal. Uh, The plan, the meaning remain unchanged through the passage of time. And that's significant to to think of as if you happen to be there to to look at um, today. Uh, Something significant. I set that up and I say that to help us remember the context of where we are in chapter 9 in Genesis. The last couple weeks, Tim has walked us into chapter 9 and last week talking about the covenant that God made with his people, the Noahic covenant. And so for what we will read this morning, I think it is important context for us to remember uh, this divine covenant, what that means, because that's the lens I want us to look at uh, this morning. Divine covenant is an act of grace whereby God binds himself by his character and his word to humanity or a group of people in a way that brings humanity blessing and glory. And again, good content and good lens for us as we read the passage together. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. It says, Noah's sons who came off the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both of their shoulders, and while walking backwards, they covered their father's father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years. Then he died. Let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning, uh, we again ask that you and you alone would speak your word to us. Uh, God, our hearts are open and yours, and uh, we just look expectantly uh, at this passage. God, thank you that even though we look at passages that sometimes make us scratch our heads and wonder, uh, God, you are still speaking to us through it. And so again, that is our our one prayer this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So the passage starts in verse 18. We see, again, the context, this Noahic covenant, but the location is they have just come off the ark. There's just a few people that are walking around, Noah and his family, Noah and his sons, and it tells us, again, reminds us who came off the ark. Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. What do we do with this? Why is this account mentioned in the Bible at all? Uh, As we read through chapter 9, it sets it up for us of this, these are the characters. 
these are the characters present, and it's really a look forward, fast-forwarding to chapter 10, where chapter 10 unfolds the lineage of all nations, the the line of all people, and we'll see that as we move into that in a, a couple weeks. But on the way to chapter 10, we find this weird event, this interaction between Noah and his three sons. And what do we do with this? Why, why is it mentioned here in the Bible at all? I mean, chapter 10 could have begun immediately after verse 19. After it says, these three sons and from them the whole earth was populated, and then boom, right into the, the genealogy and the, the family lines, and it seemingly would have been a, a seamless transition. But here we have Noah planting a vineyard, getting drunk, and uncovering himself and being seen naked in his tent. What in the world is happening here? Thank you, Tim, for going away and <laughs> leave, leaving me with this passage. We must remember the context and, again, the big picture of what's happening in the Bible In the Bible, again, it is God revealing his glory and showing us his glory through the rescue, redemption, and reconciliation of his people to himself. God's glory is on display and shown throughout. This particular passage, as we look at it again through the the lens of not only the divine covenant, but the, the big picture of the Bible, Uh, and where we're at, we're restarting humanity here. This is a parallel to the creation account. In the beginning with Adam and Eve, God planted a garden for mankind to enjoy. Chapter 9, it begins by focusing our attention back to God's blessing, his covenant relationship with us, and this post-arc restart begins with Noah planting a vineyard and God's instruction to freely enjoy. We see God at work. His sovereign plan is unchanged and it's unfolding throughout. Noah, again, as it says, he started by planting a vineyard. It says he's described in verse 20 as a man of the soil. Significant, and we need to, to pause here and understand that Noah, a man of the soil, what it means. It does point that he is involved in agriculture. He planted a vineyard, so it could, could reveal to us that, hey, Noah's a farmer, and he's going to be working in the dirt. He's going to get dirt under his fingernails. Okay, that's part of it. But it's more than that. He's more than a farmer. Noah, a man of the soil, is also pointing us to, the, to, to remember that Noah is part of God's creation, that he is a created man. He's the second Adam here, a form of a second Adam here, in that from the first, first Adam, all mankind was going to descend. And now here, Noah, post-flood, all mankind will be descending from him as well. And Noah was made from the dirt, from the earth. And again, a reminder, as a human, as a created man, he too is a man of the soil. That also reminds us that He's still a man. He's still a human being. He still possesses weaknesses and has vulnerabilities. He still is imperfect, uh, as it were. Verse 21, we see this full well. When it says, He drank some of the wine from his vineyard, from the grapes of his vineyard, became drunk and uncovered himself 
in the tent. We see here continued creation and fall similarities. In both instances, they partook of a fruit in a wrong manner. They lived out a misapplied truth, a twisted good. And it both led, Adam and Eve, and now now here Noah, it both led to a place of their shame being exposed. As we look at this word, as we look at this verse, it's, it's... easy to say, well, Noah drank and got drunk. And, and if we're only looking at it through the lens of an easy moralization, that would be our takeaway. All right, people, boys and girls, no more drinking, go home and do likewise. Amen. All right, we're done. But if our takeaway is prohibition, we've missed the big takeaway here. Certainly, the Bible is clear and consistent when it says drunkenness is always wrong. We will not find a passage in the Bible that relates to drunkenness where it is sort of unclear. No, it's, it's very clear that drunkenness is always wrong and leads to some tragic circumstances and uh, difficult circumstances, and this is the first of those. The reason this passage is here is to show us that sin got off the boat, Humanity is restarting, but sin got off the boat. Noah, he was a man of the soil, and as God-following and God-fearing as he was, he was still just a man. And so God remembers that mankind comes from dust and reminds us, the reader, here. In response to sin, God sent a flood as judgment, but it did not cure it. Sin came off the ark. Now, admittedly, this is a bit of a rough start (laughs) this morning. We're all a bunch of dirt clods. We're all soily people. Now, my friends, relax. I just want you to take a deep breath and tell you the passage only gets weirder. (laughs) (laughs) But it does bring me to the position, the, the place of asking the question, is it right, is it a proper position to have a low sense of self? As they referred to Noah as a man of the soil, that seems pretty like, yeah, that's not the, the positive place that we want to be in. Is, sh- should we be there? Should we think of ourselves that way? Only as it magnifies what we have in God. <clears throat> it's important to recognize and remember our starting position for what it does do then is, again, magnifies and expands the glory that God brings out in us through Christ. My nothing, remember that we are people of soil, is positioned for everything through Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 28 through 31. It says, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our starting position is nothing. We are soily. That's okay because of where it positions us in relationship to God. Remember, 
God's plan has not changed. His heart is for people. And as we handle and navigate peculiar passages of Scripture, remembering this truth gives us something to rest in. So there's the scene. Noah is drunk, passed out in his tent, uncovered and naked, his shame and on display, and, and this is what happens. There's, there's two responses to Noah's situation, two interactions that take place between his three sons. Verse 22, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Just one verse. This is what happened. This is what Ham did. Was Ham's response wrong? Later in the passage, it's very clear that something wrong took place here. For Noah pronounced a curse, as we'll see in just a minute, upon Ham. Was that wrong? I mean, for all we know, it could have been Ham stumbling into the tent and mistakenly seeing this. Or Ham going out to his brothers and saying, guys, this is what happened. I don't know what to do. What should we do? I don't think any of that took place as we understand what this passage signifies. Why was Ham's response wrong? Nakedness in the Old Testament was from the beginning a thing of shame for fallen man. For it represented a state of vulnerability. And to be exposed was to be unprotected. To see someone's nakedness was to bring dishonor and the potential to gain advantage for potential exploitation. The sinful, sinful nature of a human heart would, would somehow twist that opportunity and use that as an opportunity to, to gain an advantage or use it for bribery or exploitation later. The moral code required, and especially within the family construct, that seeing someone in a vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable say it with me, vulnerable, thank you, Whew. potentially dishonoring state, uh, was the duty was to cover and take care of this person, no matter the cause of the situation. So one could not look at this scene and say, well, he, Noah, he's just getting what, what he had coming to him. It's his own fault. He put himself in this situation. He made his bed, now he's, now he's got a lie in it, right? No, the moral code said seeing someone vulnerable, uh, <clears throat> and potentially dishonoring state, it is my duty to take care of them, to cover them, um, and you know, make sure that they were safe. Thank you, sir. It's water. <laughs> However, what happened, well, I, I should say, Jesus touched on this same reflex in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. Uh, so this wasn't, wouldn't be something that would be strange to biblical society, Old Testament, as well as carrying it into the, the New Testament. What did occur was Ham did not hesitate to tell his brothers to dishonor his father in an attempted discrediting of Noah in their eyes. Ham held a minimal, frivolous view of wrong of his own sin, and he did what was right for his own potential positioning in his own eyes. How does this happen? How could Ham react in this way? How had sin rooted in his heart? 
We can only guess as to what the exact events may have been or what's going on, but I think we do in this can see a glimpse into the human heart and the universal truths that we know of the human heart and what can happen inside, inside of it. Uh, I'm no different. I'm not immune. You're not immune. It potentially can, can happen to us. But as I think about it, it is still surprising for Again, remembering what Ham was present for and all that had occurred. As Noah's son, he heard Noah talk about God's revelation and plan of of what was coming. He not only heard of God's provision, but he saw God's provision. When the ark was constructed, it started raining and they were saved. He experienced firsthand God's provision, faithfulness, and salvation. And yet something was askew in his heart. The timeline of events in verse 20 to 21, when Noah planted a vineyard to when there was actual grapes to make wine, uh, if anyone is, has ever grown grapes, uh, it's quite a while. You plant a vine and it can take anywhere from two to five years before there is actually a usable grape to come from the, the, the vine. So in that span of time, it could be, it could be said that Ham's heart drifted. Ham's heart heart was unprotected and became mm, bitter, became a little just off, uh, as it it were. Proverbs 4.23 says this truth, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. I need to guard my heart. We all need to guard our hearts because when our hearts are unguarded, little things like this can come in and lead us off course. And before we know it, we are ham. Over time, a weary personal focus on self-care and leadership, self-leadership, a lackadaisical discipleship will leave one feeling worn and unsettled. And an unsettled heart is often an unguarded heart. And this is what I also know to be true. That an unguarded heart, when my heart is unguarded, my heart slides from contentment to a position of competition. From a position of rhythm to rut. From sacrifice to snark. This is what I mean. I remember that, like Noah, I am a man of the soil. How can I guard my heart? That sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like a a tiring effort. Can I do it? Maybe for a little while. I could do it for a week, a month, maybe even a year. But I'm going to get tired if it's up to me. To always be on guard and to make sure I'm doing everything right. I want you to jot down and even flip to, if you can, Philippians 4. Verse 4 through 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that there? 
Proverbs 4.23, it tells us to guard our hearts above all else for it is the source of life. Philippians 4.4 encourages us and strengthens us and gives me a place to stand when it tells me that it is actually Christ Jesus who guards my heart. A heart of contentment is a heart of rejoicing. How can my heart stay content and prevent it from sliding to competition? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I have so much to praise God for. You have so much to praise God for, to be thankful for. As you look around and take inventory, or I should say, don't look around. (laughs) Look inward and take inventory. For it is when we look around and take inventory of someone else, my heart slides from contentment to competition. This person over there, you know, okay, here I am, and this is all that God has given me and blessed me with, but look at that over there. Well, God has blessed them and given them. From contentment to competition, I can rejoice in the Lord always for who he is, what he has done, and provided for me. Let your graciousness be known to everyone, for the Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. It's giving me something to do, a rhythm to get in, a pattern to be in. So look at that. It says, don't worry about anything. It's not saying don't worry. Don't, you know, it's wrong if you have any worry at all, but it is telling us what to do with our worry, how to worry productively, as it were. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That's a rhythm of restoration right there. A rhythm of renewal. That every single day I'm going to be faced with, you're going to be faced with situations that you didn't know about yesterday, and they're going to be hard. There's going to be choices of right and wrong, and it's going to be tempting to do the easy thing and maybe the wrong thing. What is the rhythm that I can do? What is the rhythm that I can get in? Here it is right here. Prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That is a rhythm of renewal. If I think guarding my heart is up to me, I'm going to add one more righteous thing to accomplish or one more righteous thing to attain and credit myself as, as righteous And that becomes very quickly a legalistic chasing after making myself good enough, seem good enough, and appear good enough in the eyes of others. And somehow I convince myself that I can make myself look good, seem good, be good enough in the eyes of God. And that is a rut that will be very tiring and consuming and exhausting. The last thing is, in response to all of that, my life is a life of worship. Because of who God is, all he's done for me in a place of rejoicing. In everything that I do through prayer and petition, present my requests to God, that's the rhythm I'm in, and then I can freely worship and in sacrifice give all that I have back to him for his service, for his use. To say, God, everything I have is yours. Use me. An unguarded heart, when I think it's up to me, becomes a snarky heart where I mutter to myself under my breath, I can't believe I have to do this again, or how come I'm not getting recognized for what I'm doing? If you recognize any of these things, 
This isn't a, a message of condemnation, but an invitation to come back to Philippians 4.4, 4, to stay away from potentially what was the heart of Ham, of how does a heart slide in a, spirit, a, a, a small period from, from seeing all of God's provision and faithfulness to a time where he was trying to discredit his father and dis, dishonor his father, an unguarded heart. Guard your heart, for it is the source of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Pray to him continually. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that is what will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It takes a lot of pressure off of me, and I hope it does you. A lot of striving and straining in my own human effort that we can rest in the fact that it is Christ Jesus who guards my heart. We see this heart reflected in the response of Shem and Japheth. They had an honorable response. After Ham went out and told them that their father, that Noah was in the tent, drunk and uncovered, it says Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both of their shoulders, and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. How do I know that that's a guarded heart, a response of a guarded heart? Because of the detail that these verses give us into the precautions that they took to walk into and deal with a difficult situation. There was a scenario here that could have been, you know, tricky for them, but desiring to do what is right, they took all of the precautions ahead of time as best they could to handle that in a righteous God-honoring way, and they went in and covered the shame of their father. What can we do in our lives where we, we know that we're going to be faced with difficult scenarios and difficult situations? What can we do to prepare our hearts for scenarios where we know we're going to be faced with temptations, some seemingly unavoidable, some eminently avoidable, by taking precautions for this and guarding our heart. It is God, through Christ Jesus, who guards my heart. And remembering this truth of God gives me something to live for. Verse 24, it says, Noah woke up and found out what had occurred. And there were responses to each of his sons found out what had occurred, both honorable and dishonorable, and responded uh, to each. Question, little transparency on my part. I'll get to that in a second. Have you ever overreacted? Me? Just me? Okay, yeah, I think we all have been there. We all can remember a time where we were faced with something, where, where something came across us, and we overreacted. Best way I can describe it is it's that feeling, whether internally or externally, that looks a lot like, you know, that time when you're walking across the lawn and it's just that one little wispy spider web that you walk through and it lands on your face, right? What's your reaction in that moment? That's what overreaction feels like and looks like, right? Sort of like an electrocuted ballerina. That's the... It's just what, again, I say things that come out of... Come into my head sometimes, all right? In transparency, when I read this part of the passage, I think to myself, like, man, Noah, 
dude, relax. This is an overreaction. You just like brought the boom on, on him. Noah, in my mind, overshot in extreme harshness to him. It feels like this cursing, he calls out a curse is, is how I read it, you know, and read it the first time. Uh, dooms Ham and his family line to a position of unredeemable. <clears throat> was this an overreaction? In the ancient world, a curse was only as powerful as the one who was making it. Anyone could talk verbally a big game, but it was only reality if God was invoked. The Torah had no magical ideas of sorcery or divination, so it's not like a human being could snap their fingers or speak some words and call something into existence. That is something only God can do. So when we see this in the passage, or curses and cursing in the Old Testament, we need to have a proper understanding of, of what is happening here. It's Again, I think in our current society, we've seen too many movies where, you know, a little hocus pocus and, dare I say, Harry Potter. <laughs> that, that wasn't a comment either way, just magical, that's all. But transcribing that into the Old Testament is, is incorrect. There wasn't any of that here. So Noah wasn't creating something out of nothing. In the book, Creation and Blessing by Alan Ross, he says this. He says, The curse was thus a means of seeing that the will of the Lord was executed in divine judgment on anyone profaning what was cursed. It was an expression of faith in the just rule of God. For one who cursed had no other recourse. When Noah says, Canaan is cursed... Twice we are told that Ham is the father of Canaan. You, you, we can look at that and say, Canaan is cursed. What, what just happened here? It was Ham who, you know, responded uh, inappropriately. But twice we are told that Ham is the father of Canaan. Canaan, Shem, and Japheth, all three, are more than individuals here in this passage. For their name usage represents all of their descendants, the whole family line. Again, as this is leading into chapter 10. The actions of future Canaanites were symbolized by the actions of Ham here in this passage. As we look through, fast forward again into the Old Testament, the Canaanite history is marked by their vile practices and corrupting influence on Israel. This is what we know. Sin corrupts, sin enslaves. It's not someone else's word that corrupts. It is one's own unchecked sin and hardened heart. So Noah did not set the course of Canaan throughout, through his own word here. It was Ham's unguarded heart and subsequent Canaanite actions that did. What did occur was that Noah called it out, a prophetic oracle, and this truth remains. The wages of sin is death. So what Noah is saying here is, Ham, you have responded sinfully. You have responded with a heart not after righteousness or the Lord. And if this continues, this is the destination of that. Slavery. <clears throat> this is the destination of that. Ultimately, the wages of sin is death. The opposite 
is true with the response to Japheth and Shem, Shem and Japheth. And in verse 26, notice in Noah's response to them that he does not praise or bless Shem or Japheth as men. He blesses the Lord. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He isn't saying, Shem, Japheth, good job out of you. You guys get gold stars. No, he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. You will be blessed because you follow the Lord, not because you did a good deed. It is God and God alone who blesses, not a transactional response in the sense of do a good deed, get one blessing. Do two good deeds, get a bigger blessing. No, saying follow after the Lord and he will take care of you. He will guard your heart. Shem will be blessed because he follows Yahweh. Japheth will be blessed in following Yahweh himself and blessed also in his association with Shem. And God is near to and blesses the righteous. It's important, again, I am aware of my own unrighteousness. And Ham, the Canaanites in turn, did wrong and seemingly could not break out of it. Is that what will become of me? Again, I'm, I'm feeling soily, and there are times when I definitely feel like I am a man of the soil. Am I to be repeating the, the line here of, of Ham and Canaan? Well, in this passage, as he blesses the Lord, the God of Shem, what Noah is doing here, again, is pointing forward to Shem, who will then be the ancestor of Abraham, who will inherit the land, and through whom all nations will be blessed, and whom Abraham is the ancestor and the family line down through Jesus. We need to look at that lineage moving forward, just as we look at lineages moving backwards, when it says, through you all nations will be blessed, that meant even the Canaanites. Even the Canaanites had opportunity for redemption. And so to answer this question, is that what will become of me? No. For you are eminently redeemable that you are absolutely redeemable. There is nothing that you can do, nothing that you have done, no position that you are in currently that is outside the saving grace of God. In response to sin, God sent a flood as judgment, but it did not cure it. God sent Jesus in response to sin as savior, and he did cure it. The symbols are important in this passage and move forward. Again, as this is a parallel to creation story, in the garden, God covered over the shame of Adam and Eve. In this passage here, Shem and Japheth cover over the shame of Noah. And this morning, there is reason for hope because just as we said the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He covers our shame. This is the best news that you will ever hear. 
We've had some pretty good days. You can think of some pretty good days and, and good news given to you, but this is the best news you'll ever hear, and it's this right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when it says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is through Jesus Christ that he covers our shame. Again, you may be feeling soily, you may be feeling like an extra large clod of dirt this morning, but you are not outside the grace of God, the goodness of God. God's plan has not changed. There's no amount of time that can take place. There's no amount of painful experiences that can occur over that timeline that will change that. His heart is for people. And to cover my shame your shame, God sent a savior, Jesus. We're looking at this lens, we're looking at this passage, again, through the lens of a divine covenant, and remember that. And so looking at this, even though it's a peculiar passage, I can hang on to the fact that God's heart is for people, and so I have something to rest in. I can remember that it is God alone who guards my heart. I have something to live for. And as I come to understand and even know personally God's gift of salvation by grace, I too then have something to share. Let's pray. God, as we come before you again, you speak through your word right now, currently, and you will continue to speak through your word as we Remember it and meditate on it. God, may this message of hope, may this truth of redemption be something that is constantly at the forefront of our minds. That even though we are people of the dirt, created beings touched by the curse of sin, God, you have broken that curse, you have covered over our shame through Christ Jesus. God, may this be what is moving us closer and closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.